Oh god, it burns. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Oh God, it burns. My name is Nick. My name is Bruno. And now, after we've gone through all of Ron Zimmerman's works for Marvel, hell, for anything, because <laughs> he never really wrote comics after this, uh, we're going to go ahead. Thank God. I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, we're dedicating this, uh, uh, this episode to doing a rundown of it and also to kind of set up the next thing, because we have a little uh, thing called Marvel You Decide that Zimmerman got caught in the middle of uh, that really does set up our next run of comics that we're going to be talking about on here so uh yeah so wrapping up ron zimmerman what were your thoughts on him all right well here's the thing um honestly i hadn't recalled much about ron zimmerman until like we started getting into this and started giving me some of his backstory like uh how he was a tv writer which kind of shows mm-hmm. you could tell that he wrote really like sitcom schlocky stuff and actually like almost every single title page of his work is kind of set up as like writer producer director like it really draws on his hollywood connections to it too and i mean you could see it because you could tell like that he's just like insert laugh track here so he doesn't realize Mm -hmm. that comic book mediums don't come with laugh tracks yeah so the jokes fall flat on their own merit yeah it's Um, it's they're they're without that audience manipulation like there's no way this is like i know you like the big bang theory yes i fucking hate it but it's like watching big bang theory without a laugh track did you I've ever done, see that I, i've done that before did oh. you realize how wrong you were for liking that show <laughs> you heard it without the laugh track now here's the thing i i will be honest with you i i did like i do like big bang theory although i've kind of dropped off a bit i know it's can't it's over now but um initially i liked the concept of it and the references were great and just the eye candy of like dude they they had um first show that i ever saw that repped the color core which I've never seen anyone. He was wearing different like Green Lantern. They had the Red Lantern, Sinestro. Like they were wrapping up. Like they were mad shout outs to DC. And even Marvel. the only thing I know about that too is they also made a shout out to Doctor Octopus, the Spider Man, taking over Superior Spider Man. But are you telling me that the thing that drew you most to it was the over reliance on references? Yes, <laughs> yes. Which is why. Uh, but. May I add, those are references done right, sir. Whereas, when we talk Zimmerman, we can't talk about Zimmerman without him name-dropping everyone he knows. We created a a category on the last episode, literally called Bad Cameos, which, if we were to retroactively put it in, we would be able to award one for each. In fact, most of our show would probably be those Bad Cameos. Yeah. Because there hasn't been a single issue... Of its own merit. You would that think he that have you could escape cameo. the cameos by going to Rawhide Kid, which is historical drama. But then we had George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the big cameo was in Sensational 7, well, but what about, who gives a shit? What about that guy kept referencing the Avengers left and right? Yeah, that's right. That's it. I mean, he's like talking about the Avengers and like riding on that one. But yeah, so it's just like, that's Ron Zimmerman. He rode in on the whole idea of like, hey, Kevin Smith got it right with Daredevil. Let's go, and he was supposed to take over for Amazing Spider-Man with Black Cat and the Evil That Men Do, and then also we had um, Jeff Loeb, who was uh, in uh, the TV side of things. We had J. Michael Straczynski coming in, who wrote a lot of stuff for movies and television, and now we had Ron Zimmerman, who was trying his best, and God damn it, it he almost pulled it off. Yeah, almost pulled it off. It weren't for, weren't for the fact that he can't right. shut up with his bad jokes like he thinks that every single joke he says is like the greatest thing that's ever written like not everyone could be Alan Heinberg not everyone could come from TV and actually write poignantly good storylines like Young Avengers 
for every Heinberg, there's a Zimmerman. That's yep. just what I've discovered. Um, so yeah, before we jump into this and start going on to you decide, uh, let's go ahead and now that we've read everything he's gotten, let's go ahead and rank off. I do need each to, one of these. I do need to point one out. When you told me that he worked for Howard Stern, I was like, that explains a lot of the jokes because they almost could look like jokes that weren't good enough for Stern, but definitely filled into that kind of category. Like yeah. low hanging fruit, which was. It was Howard Stern's delivery that made it work, but they were all low-hanging fruit. Like, he wouldn't... Actually, if there was a biography written on Zimmerman, it would be low-hanging fruit. Except for the one low, the one fruit that he picked that was just so fucking perfect. Yeah. That is the most timeliest of timely. And we'll get to it when we get to yeah. it, if you can't remember what it was. But if, if you remember it, then uh, uh, me too. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump into our rankings. I also, I also think that low hanging fruit would also be a great nickname for the rawhide kid. Oh, <laughs> the <fruit>. third outing, <laughs> low hanging fruit, because <laughs> it just got worse with the sensational seven. So if he did another one, he's just called rawhide kid, low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll, I'll be there for it. So without further ado, for the third time, Bruno, uh, sorry. can I fucking get on? With it? Get on with it. <laughs> So let's go unceremoniously. Let's go ahead, start with the best, and work our way to the worst because we're pretty much on lockstep with this. So uh, for the best one, we had Tangled Web number thirteen, the double shot, art by Sean Phillips, and also, did you know Sean Phillips did the lettering in that too? No, I didn't know. That. I went back because after seeing like uh, uh, the last episode when we were talking about Ultimate Adventures, I was like really looking at Duncan Fergredo. And I, w- I thought it super interesting that Paul Mounts was such an influence on that series, but he wasn't given a cover credit. Right. This was before colorists were given cover credits, which is something now we see all, all the, the time. time yeah. So I went back and I was just like, hmm, what else does Sean Phillips do? Like, what was his anchor and stuff? And I saw that he did the letters for that one, which is why it looks so interesting. So Tangled Web, of course, we're going to the bar with no name. We've got a bunch of supervillains. Uh, uh, we talked about it on the last one, but it had like a really good Norman Osborn reveal. Introduced the new iteration of Aloysia Cravenoff and Timber, and also had a pretty decent take on the Vulture as well. So this one really took the prize as the top for me and Ron Zimmerman, and also like one of the standouts in all of the Tangled Web th- series, which was nothing but good hits. And in all fairness, though, this is also the only Ron Zimmerman project where the characterizations right. Yeah. The only time that he got almost as if it was like some kind of fluke or someone was like, damn it, you need to get at least one. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just like edited the hell out of it. And just, I remember during the interview, you kept talking about how the artwork just kept them confined to stopping him from making these awful jokes and running with it, except for the time with the vulture, which was on point because the vulture was just a, talking about how annoying like, Spider-Man anno- was, like and just, he was talking about the annoying quips. So he, it worked perfectly. And not only that, but it came from the voice of the, the one character that just sounds like a grumpy old man. So when you sit there and he's just riffing off of one joke after the other, after the other, after the other, it worked perfectly because you can imagine an old man just complaining about yep. th- this like do-gooder that's in his way. So it was perfect characterization throughout. Even other characters like world. Still wearing his hood and everyone making fun of him for it, and his little talk with Stiltman, like, and the bartender is like, "You guys know the rules. There ain't no fighting in here." Yep. All of that was on point, and then to the payoff, where the the character that you're kind of wondering, like, this, who is this person, to be freaking goblin and just leave that freaking pumpkin right there on the table as his calling card, like the Joker would leave his bloody Joker oh, it was card. Good. It was. It good. was. There was it. 
it almost is like he was channeling someone else because none of this matches up. I think up. someone else like ghost wrote. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> one, or it, someone had the plot and then died. Like, was this when Steve Gerber died? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then like he kind of swooped in and, and just kind of like finished this one up because this was fucking good. I was like, yeah. And this is the only one on this list that actually doesn't have an asterisk next to it. It was like, this is good for Ron Zimmerman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is actually good. So Tangled Web, easy. Easy. This is the best that he's got right here. Now we're going into Raw High Kid, the first series, which is good, but also has an asterisk for, for Ron, Ron Zimmerman. Zimmerman. This is the Ron Zimmerman's take on Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very tug in cheek, and honestly, as a series, I feel like it would stand on its own. It just got bogged down by the controversy of Marvel pushing it as the first gay character of a series. Not really, but definitely yeah, that, one, that one like i said before went to uh north star because he had an issue like a four issue series right after alpha flight was canceled post him coming out but um rawhide kid it was definitely the first one that was fully advertised and pushed out there and it was a max line so everyone was expecting a hardcore and i'm pretty sure most people thought there was going to be rampant gay sex in it but realistically there weren't even any swear words i think the the worst he said like someone said pussy yeah. And that was it. No, there sis, weren't even swear words. Sissy and I think Pussy were used yeah. in there. Uh, and Sissy more than anything else. But it was great because the whole thing was it was a tongue-in-cheek joke where they replaced the term gay with sharp-dressed man. And they just kept using it in such a way that it almost felt like a Mel Brooks comedy. Like, yeah. that dude beat us, but boy, he was sharp-dressed right and down yeah, he, to his... Foot. He was the thing that was driving the plot, but really the story was focused on this kid and his relationship with his dad and Laura Ingalls Wilder. And, like, that actually had some heart to it. And the jokes mostly landed in this and were actually pretty good stuff. And yeah. John Severin doing the art actually was pretty good and I yeah. think that also kind of goes with the whole like Sean Phillips being the straight man type of thing because yeah. this was drawn as a western comic by a guy who drew the character who drew the hell out of this character for a long time and like what was he in the 80s like this still as fresh as it was actually he started back when before Marvel Comics was Marvel Comics was that's it, when they were doing the, Mar- when the, the timely? that's when he was writing uh, drawing a Rawhide Kid that's right when it was still timely doing the westerns yeah so like he was he's old school man yeah and he came in, and he was in on the joke, and he did it really well, and it was so good. And, I mean, it was great, because it was a character um, that kind of broke the fourth wall. Like, he, there was a lot of nodding and winking at the camera, but it landed, because all the other people just weren't in on the joke, but they were aware that something was But all the girls about. knew. So. Like, all the girls knew, but all the guys were like... Like, I, I, I remember that joke where he was just like... Um, He's like, uh, yeah, I had a tough... How'd you sleep? He's like, oh, I had a tough time sleeping. And he's like, yeah, I'd have a tough time sleeping too. Um, and he's like, well, yeah, I always have a tough time sleeping in a room in a house full of strange men alone. And the guy's just like, you are one strange fella. And he's like, well, no one ever said that looks and smarts go together. Yep. You know, so it was just great. One shot after the other. A lot of, like... It felt like if Mel Brooks wrote a comic, that's what it was, and mm-hmm. it was there was nothing I, I hated. I mean, about it would have had better jokes if Mel Brooks did it. Yeah, oh, it, it would have been great. I mean, but were, still, this was. But then again, you can't really tell if Mel Brooks had the timing for comics. For yeah. comics, like he has the timing for TV, but this theater, he has the timing for movies. But this was good. Like his timings really were, like were great on this, and it, I was like, I liked this way more than it did. And given the fact that there was, it was a Western comic, which 
really hit or miss with me. Yeah. There was no surprise. Well, also, I, I think another thing that was, worked in his favor was Joe Casada was trying to develop this long before Zimmerman was even attached to it. Yeah. So the basic story was kind of already outlined. So Zimmerman just had to come in and do his like do his thing to tie it all together. And he did. And he did it. It was good. Wasn't it? Was it a Max series? It really no. shouldn't have been a Max series, but I think the fact that it was a Max series, like, kind of gave it a more prestige yeah. to it. So Rawhide Kid is our number two of the best on the list, and we come down to The Punisher number eight. Yep. And this one was also pretty decent. This is a Marvel Knights Punisher series, and and this one, I, like I said, it it kind of takes a turn because as you're reading it. Um, and this is actually the reason that like I, I put it up on the list um, as third because it was a really weird concept because all of a sudden in this conversation, Punisher gets the idea that he's going to go back in time and stop Capone and fix things. And he knows that in doing so, he may like inadvertently kill himself, um, but it doesn't matter because it will stop like prevent all these this crime in the future and possibly save his family and he meets up with all these heroes calling in all these favors which when i read it at first it threw me off because it was a little bit tight because usually every time everyone from nick fury on to all the superheroes whenever they see the punisher they're like oh god here he comes again he's he's literally like the buzzkill of every party just the dude that shows up to the party and drinks too much and always like the cops get called because of him that's what the punisher is in the marvel universe he is the party's over-the-top buzzkill. And the fact that he was just on such a good term with everyone, but because of this dire need, just threw me off. And then, like, the whole thing where it's like, wow, he actually did succeed. Mr. Fantastic sent me back in time. You know, And you're like, like this, this is a Punisher story? I was like, he's interacting with Mr. Fantastic. Uh, Fury, I understand, but Mr. Fantastic, well, Fury, I understand, time de- travel? Depending on the need, but I've never seen Punisher pulling the clout from Fury, like, I need something. If you're like, all right. Yeah. Fury just be like, then you have the Punisher opening up to some random goon, and it's just like, this is this seems a little off, but then he takes out all Capone's men, and then it turns out that this is what happens when Frank Castle sleeps. But the characterization was still there on yeah. this one, uh, like, more so than... Um, which surprised me. So this was like on par with characterization for Double Shot because it was weird that the the cameos were not doing well. Like Reed actually helped them out, but Punisher was like, "Oh, he sent me back a time and it worked." He you know, might be too smart. He might be too I'm smart. Gonna I'm gonna have to kill him when I get back just to make sure that things don't go like stuff he events doesn't go in the wrong hands. And I'm like, this is insane. And then we find out why this all worked out. It was the classic trope. This is all a dream. And this is a, pun- a Punisher having a sweet dream where he dies killing Capone but saving his family and here's the thing with all the cliches that Ron Zimmerman brings in like it's funny to me that he pulled off actually like the biggest cliche of them all well it's just this is all just a dream it's all just a dream but it's a sweet like it worked out and this is really funny because you think about it the Punisher would have a really for the Punisher to get a good night's rest he'd have to have a fucked up dream because he like wakes up it's killing time Yep. So, like, obviously, he's not going to be sitting there about, he's like... He's like the Dark Ben Grimm. Like, yeah, <laughs> Instead of it's kill- a clobber in time, he's like, Oh, it's time to my up some motherfuckers. <laughs> right? Like, he's like, what, what kind of Goombas am I killing today? Yeah. But it's nice to know that, like, he's not sitting there having dreams about his family. No, he's having, like, real dreams about, like, you know, killing all these people and saving his family indirectly. Like, that's... Yep. That's awesome. It was a level of the Punisher that I I, I didn't think about, and, I was and like, also as someone who really was into Al Capone and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre as a youngster, like all, his references really hit for me too because I really did enjoy like those Bugs Moran. Cam- He's talking about Bugs Moran. Those cameos for once, I think it's because they were in the public domain, yeah. So he could play with them, and no one had to. And be they like, actually you had relevance in to the story. today's time too. It's like 
they still are relevant because they're a record of history. Whereas in his other works, like he drop a name and it's just like, oh, that doesn't matter. Except for Scott Bayo. Because he rode the Trump train straight back to relevance yeah. <laughs> recently. Well, yeah, but it's really weird that he had some kind of like man crush on Scott Bayo, which is hilarious. Yeah. Although he does drop Trump's name in uh, in one of our later things. I can't remember that. I'll, 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 when we get to it, I will let you know that there is a Trump drop. But this is Celebrity Apprentice Trump, not quite presidential yeah. Trump. So that brings us uh, quite a... Actually segues unintentionally into Get Craven. Yeah. Which was the one I was talking to at the beginning when I talked about like yeah he drops a lot of names but there's like some references that like at least one reference that was a spot on and that was this is the comic that attempted to take down the Weinsteins before the Me Too movement was even a thing like this this really flabbergasted me when I saw this like it opens up with the Rothsteins the Weinsteins sitting on a couch like farting just berating people it it hits so well with all this stuff and I'm like man like in this comic this is a takedown of the Weinsteins back in like 2003 or 2001 whatever the hell it was and then like it goes on and yeah the story isn't that great but at least it has a story and a structure that moves along with it that fills up six issues and I mean he does which is something I can't say for a lot of his other see here's the thing I like this one as well like honestly of at pros of like stories that I would recommend hands down for people that are interested and you know in Ron Zimmerman and both in comic books, like we're getting at the part of the list where I'm still saying, like, yeah, this is a good I would, read. Honestly, I would go back and read read this one over Rawhide Kid and Punisher. Actually, yeah, like this is this is rereadable. However, me. I really do wish they would kept the foreign title of Monsters of Hollywood versus Get Craven because I think that lands a lot better. Yeah, that was the the Spanish uh, title. The Spanish title, Monstruos de Hollywood. Yep. <laughs> I don't know why it went Asian when I was trying to go Spanish, but that's Spider Man Get Craven and Spider Man was in it just a few times. Yeah, but, um, but at the beginning and at the very but end, there was also a pro feminist in there in that Timby. She uh, beats the hell out of those producers. Out of the Weinsteins. And also, she stands up for another for like, another actress starring actress who was like doped out of her mind because that's the only way she can. Well, that's beat that's why I was I like the title Monsters of Hollywood because it wasn't just a pot shot at at mm. um, it was a pot shot at all of Hollywood. It was a pot shot at all Hollywood, including just the casting call yeah. for like a random sitcom, which was a t- uh, their version of that '70s show, which I guess was mm-hmm. popular at the time. So they called it the Decade Show, and they were doing the '60s one. Yeah, and she goes in for that interview with some other girl that's been there like four times, needs this job to pay for her like antidepressants and antipsychotics because of all the pressure and anxiety that she's had from this thing, and then has a seizure like from this, and like every, even the secretary wants to help her, but he's like, "Yeah, she'll be fine." Like we're all dealing with this. Like I take those medicines too. Mm-hmm. She'll just sleep it off, and goes in there, and it's all about the male ego. Because there's a whole scene in there where she just says it's a cute script, and they're like, "Cute? This isn't cute. It's a masterpiece. How dare you, you stupid slut!" And they just go on it, and she just rips them a new one, beats the crap out of them, and sicks the wolf on them. And she's like, "If you guys want to come back at me." Just remember, anytime you want to, I'll finish you off. Yeah. And she's like, screw this. I'm going to be a producer. I don't need like to do this acting crap that bad if this is what it means to be an actor. So it was very pro-feminine attack on Hollywood. Definitely announced the Weinsteins as jerks. It was so much was in that comic book. That was so badly written, like yeah, like the vulture I mean, it, with his if dad it jokes. Just stuck to the Hollywood stuff and stuck to eviscerating Hollywood instead of trying to. 
like, shoehorn superheroes in. Shoehorn superheroes in. Like, maybe it could have been something better. I think. Yeah, were... it's number four on our list. Number one in cultural relevance, for sure. Like, yeah, I mean, it is. This was the most surprising one of the bunch, and I'm I'm kind of flabbergasted that we started off this strong. <laughs> what's, what's really. <laughs> Out of just a random draw. What's really sad is if this was under the Tangled Web series versus just being its own Get Craven thing. So it would have lowered the pedigree of the Tangled Web series. It would have, but here's the thing. Especially like later on, it wouldn't have been so bad because Spider-Man wasn't always in this one. But when you read Spider-Man's Get Craven, and Craven isn't really in it, and then it's Craven 2.0, the son, and even he's like not a villain, there's no getting Craven. It was just literally their take on Get Shorty, this random movie that people hadn't seen in forever about a dude that wants to become a movie producer so it lost a lot of that because of the fact that it tried to ride on spider-man's coattails and it mismarketed itself because Mm -hmm. it really did do a lot it just the writing was also bad but there's a lot of comedy gold that came from that i mean do we need to bring back the gerbil i mean the gerbil how he came up in like one panel the urban like basically they their henchmen were urban hollywood Stitch, the cosmetic guy who had like coke bottles <laughs> beer bottles like and he was all in his like fist. well the, the whole stitch thing was yeah. like plastic surgery and or his name was scar or stitch i can't remember something like that and then they had the script doctor this mysterious doctor who didn't do just, anything he just sits in the back and looks menacing and the gerbil who dribble. didn't do anything but just, was a call back to richard gears and booty hole yeah so i mean there was a lot of like references in there that landed well and i honestly would still recommend it it's just <clears throat> it was marketed so badly no it's it's a massive recommend for me uh, yeah. it's it's number four like i said you really out of all these it's tangled web and get craven you should be reading rawhide kid i'm gonna throw up there as a possible number three Punish? just to kind of round out like absolute best of them but punisher as much as it's better than get craven like on a on a like purely just technical like level. technical level, you can go without reading that. No, I, I mean even even in itself was it was a filler in the Marvel Night series. It was yeah. just so that they can the regular staff can have a break. Um, and that brings us next to our our number five, which is Startling Stories: The Thing, which was a story that was so mediocre that it just yeah. had to be smack dab in the middle. Now we're now it we're, had like no aspirations whatsoever, and it achieved all those aspirations except for the end when it finally turned into something that was it. super startling. For, which was part of the point of Starling Stories. Part of the point of Starling Stories. But the Starling part of this whole book was how long we had to wait to get to that point. Yeah, point. it's just like, shit, why didn't you just knock out all this stuff and have that right there? Like, this should have been a story about how, like, Blastar is trying to take out a pregnant Sue Storm and kill her and her kid. And then Thing is trying his best to try to, trying to like, protect them. And that, to me, is such a better story than all the other shit that happened. And the two other stories were Ben Grimm is basically like Sm- a womanizing spanking. Guido. He's spanking the wrecker with his with a, no, with his wrench. No, with his hit, crowbar. Actually, no. He hit the, the one with the he smacked them with just like a random paddle that he made. Oh, that's right. He picked up As a random like, paddle and beat it. Yeah, so, it was so oh, stupid. Oh, like a stop sign or something. Well, yeah, that last part. Like it's recommend for that last part. You don't read anything else except for that blast star stories. And then at the end too, it had a good wrap up with a. Uh, it turns out like he got sent out for to take on the Hulk. Yeah, which was kind of a throwback to what they were doing with the Hulk with a banner. Yeah, you know? with banner. so it's almost like that was a slight continuity of what was going on between them, even though all these series are somewhat out of continuity. Kind of like the M Night Shyamalan like Unbreakable universe was just like a random callback. I'm like, oh, that's what ha- was happening in this universe. Yep. No, it but was... it was definitely one that I'd say like it's not really worth buying because they're like two thirds of it is just. 
unreadable crap. And then just like, rip out the first two. And, and he just go back to that like this part where he's just sitting in the desert telling this dude the last story of what it means to have heart. And and he's like very arrogant Ben Grimm too, where he's just like, and he's telling this guy who's a soldier to shut up and yeah. stuff like that. You better not bore me, kid. Like that's not Ben Grimm. No. And where's the, the heart? And then the whole story of just. Um, even Blaster's characterization is weird because suddenly he's with other mini Blasters, like two dudes. When really he was always portrayed as just being the last, like there's only one dude. Like nobody needs to be strong. Yeah. He's his own dude. Why does he suddenly have minions and all this? So a lot of it was just bad characterization, unnecessary superhero cameos, and badly portrayed ones like Medusa Ho. Mm-hmm. Like she was really portrayed to go from someone who wrote Timby so well and then to turn Medusa is like, oh. I, I want you, but I'm married, so I'm not going to act on it. But you know I want you, though, right? Yeah. And I was just like, and then Ben Grimm bragging about it, even though he's like, but I love my wife, or soon, not yet wife, but my girl. I, I got my, my girl at home, even yeah. though I just want to go check out babes on the beach with Johnny Storm. Yeah. So, so yeah, that one in the middle, and the for, middle. for reasons. And then, and then we come up next to uh, the Jay Leno Spider-Man crossover, One Night Only, which you could places higher on the list just because it's so short and it's done as quick as it comes like it, it's it's just a backup feature i mean and the and, honestly, and it's as forgettable as backup features go right? and it's honestly the only reason that it's higher is because the issues that it's a backup feature for are actually worth the purchase mm-hmm. and greg capullo art it's not yeah. bad greg capullo art early so, greg capullo like fresh off a of spawn like this so is i mean this the art is good the story the issues that you would buy this for are worth the read um the story itself is just a forgettable thing. It's if yeah. Spider-Man meets Jay Leno, and then it, it's there isn't even a real villain in this. Turns out the whole thing was set up by the the producer just to rack up instead of a, what they thought was a car commercial. Turns out to be their new take on a Survivor show, surviving the MCU. Yeah. and then Spider-Man just chokes a lot and when he's trying to when he gets on Jay Leno to yeah. describe the whole thing. So it's it's a throwaway. Yeah, it's definitely it does lead into a, like the next. Uh, a later Spider-Man story that he uh, writes, but other than that, like you can do without this one. It's there's nothing, there's nothing for memorable about this. All right. And then we get into Sensational Seven, which is painfully mediocre. Yeah, I, I, so painfully mediocre. All the goodwill that was done with Rawhide Kid and the Mel Brooks humor that is attempted, this, as I said before, is low-hanging fruit at its finest. It's written by the same people that would write, like, not another team movie. So it's, like, not another Rawhide comic book. Yeah. It should be the title of this. It really because was. Because at this point, right from the opening issue, they're, everyone's in on the joke. And suddenly it goes from, like, oh, he's a sharp-dressed man to look at that sharp-dressed... It, it just mm-hmm. reads, like, they're, they're saying fag instead of saying sharp-dressed man. Yeah. And it's it awful. really is good Howard Chaykin art. Yeah. The, Everything else is the just like is, is you groan great. your way through every single page. Because it, it's even, it's red as at this point where it's just like, oh, I know how to write gay people. We'll just call it. We'll just start using it. Whereas before it was like, it's kind There's of no funny. Tact. There's, There's no, no tact. tact it's just like literally like you're, you're trying to be like, yeah, it's gay, but you meet it in a negative way. Yeah. Um, the only part and then I liked the first issue. The whole issue should have been about the new ghostwriter because he looked really cool. And mm-hmm. he was there for one, one splash page and that was it. And then the rest of it was just a couple of jokes that didn't land well and then the last issue the gun battle 
if you skip right to the the last issue, it was so confusing. It was so confusing, but the battle because you had no idea what happened, and even when he explained it, you were like, "This, there's no fucking way." There's, here's the thing: if you read the first issue and skipped all the way to the last issue, you would have the same effect as reading the entire series, and you kind of get a chuckle out of it. Because I actually did that. Did you? I actually did that. I, re- I reread the first issue, so it really should have been just been like a sixty page. Yeah, it should have been like a, a forty. It should have been like an annual, like an yeah. annual, and that would have been it. Because the first page is like, "All right, we're gonna go ahead and, and rescue these guys, and we're gonna leave this guy in charge." And then they go and off panel meet all these people, which those issues nothing exciting got into it. Nothing happens except for they meet people. And then it's just like, oh, but they they got our... They got and Doc our... Holliday, like, beat some people up in some okay scenes. Like, there's some funny stuff, some jokes in there that were yeah. that kind of landed okay, but nothing memorable. And then, all of a sudden, it's like, well, he hired all these outlaws, duplicates of us. And you f- see these outlaw duplicates, and you get a call back to, like, the Indiana Jones fight, where this dude's, like, swinging his sword to get shot. You have the, the best thing of this entire series was the fashion fight between... Um, Rawhide Kid, yep. and I don't for, I forgot what the other guy's name was. Like Combo Kid, I don't know. Like Kid something or other, and it was just like basically sharp jabs at each at each other's fastnesses. Like I see that you've got that. Is it Snake Handle? Like no, no, no. no. There, it was a war of compliments. Is it was what like it was. that's they what it really was. They were just other. like literally just throwing each other like compliments. Like oh, you were wearing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, well, I'm assuming you must have that. Oh, I don't think you could possibly... Like, I couldn't possibly pull off white boots after Labor Day. And just killing each other with kindness. And they're like, oh, yeah, we should probably get to this gun shooting yeah. thing. Was Ready, it? set, go. Uh, God, Sensational 7. That was four issues that felt like a lot much more... Actually, I, I, four issues that felt like nothing happened in the entire thing. All right. And this, so. and this is where we hit our first bump on the road. Uh, and this is actually... We only have two more left. And yeah. we argued about this so we're, I'm leaving I'm standing by my man yeah. <laughs> you go Nick's a loyal hoe so my next ones that I put down um, Ultimate Adventures was my second to le- like worst just because Duncan Forgetto's artwork did something for me whereas I can't say the same thing about Spider-Man Sweet Charity because it was bad jokes it was bad writing and even Derek Robinson's artwork who's someone who I actually like and even when he was doing Wolverine at this time with Greg Rucka it wasn't like my favorite art, but I really did appreciate his work. There's nothing here that shows that this guy has talent, and it looked like he just kind of phoned it in for 60 pages. Yeah. And that's another thing that I hated about Sweet Charity. It was 60 pages in one issue. Like, I didn't even finish it in time to talk about it on our podcast, but I, in the time like since, I finished it, and I, I liked it better before I finished it. So... For me, it's Ultimate Adventures, then it jumps down to Sweet Charity. See, for me, it was the other way around. It was Sweet Charity and Ultimate Adventures. And this mostly goes from context versus aesthetics. Aesthetically speaking, I would agree with Nick. Context-wise, <clears throat> I think that Sweet Charity um, had more to offer than Ultimate Adventures. What, do you think it was more respectful to 9-11? Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, Sweet Charity was the one that had the Trump reference. And when he was listing off all the people that were going to be at the promo... Donald Trump gets thrown along there, along with, and then Scott Bayo is mentioned later on. Oh, with like the twenty page droning of yeah. all the people that could possibly show up. But uh, Sweet Charity was like an extended version and kind of a spiritual sequel to Jay Leno's um, the Jay Leno backup feature. In so much, so it starts off the exact same way. Jonah Jameson forces Spider Man to go ahead and participate in this event, and everyone forces him because it's for charity and it's for the World Trade Center. And it winds up becoming biting them in the butt when 
Alan uh, or Craven 2.0 or Alyosha um, and Timby decide it's in their it would be great and really funny if they spent all this money to make these two take a trip together and be stuck out in the woods. So you see Spider Man out of his element, and then him and J. Jonah Emerson at odds in a very groaning way because it's literally like little rascals, but like a raunchier little rascals. Uh, um, and it's definitely I, I kept thinking of like that. That scene in Dennis the Menace where like the hobo Christopher Lloyd yeah. was just kind of like hanging out under the bridge and when he kidnaps Dennis the Menace like that was probably the closest I can get to like saying oh yeah I kind of get this but everything else like you yeah, have Scorpion biting into a rock well, he's so mad putting his head through a wall we've already established that I don't think it bear, was supposed to be Scorpion meeting anyway. up with the Simpsons I had to, having a long diatribe about Popeye while he's eating baked beans it was like bad. spinach. It was, it, was, bad. it was it was bad and way longer than it should have been. It at most should have been a backup feature and could have been cut down severely. But So now go ahead and explain to us why Ultimate Adventures is worse than that, because uh I'm gonna call your bullshit. Alright, well on this. here's the thing. Like I said, I thought that there were some redeeming factors to Sweet Charity. The artwork, not at all. But the storyline, again, Given the nature of it, it did play out character-wise a lot better and went somewhere um, in comparison to Ultimate Adventures, where nothing that was shown went anywhere, and everything was just kind of tacked on last minute. Like, the villain was even crappier than the Scorpion, <clears throat> who himself, in Sweet Charity, was, was the worst rendition of that character. Because it wasn't even supposed to be him. I almost assumed that it was supposed to be Eddie Brock with the callback to the barbells, and then they were just like, well, we can't get Eddie Brock because... I think this is when they had the clone, the Eddie clone that was going on. I think that was the timetable. What was the Eddie clone? The Venom, like, they had the Venom series, but then it turns out retroactively, because they had another plan right before they introduced Agent Venom, so they had to retroactively... Oh, no, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about when Daniel Ray and Francisco Herrera, Herrera and, and then jumped they on it. The no, this was, this was way before that, because uh, that was so riding we'll, the coattails after, like, uh, Humberto Ramos. He did his Green Goblin story in Peter Parker's Spider-Man. And then you had Zeb Wells take over while they went ahead and relaunched Sensational. So but Francisco Herrera got brought in because there was such a good reaction to uh, Humberto Ramos's art, which, by the way, he's like synonymous with Spider-Man now. Yeah. And then they were like, "Yeah, you can draw Venom." So they put Humberto Ramos on the Venom to launch uh, side by side with uh, Paul Jenkins and Humberto Ramos doing like uh, the reboot of Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. And it just. This was years after that. Like, so what was going on with Venom that they couldn't just use Venom? Because it really felt like it was Venom. I'm not even sure if it was really supposed to be Venom. Even though it would make more sense to be Venom, I think they might have just wanted to just I leave him be. I think maybe they threw out the Scorpion because of the whole connection to Jameson. Cause that was it. I think. That but then was, Venom has connections to Jameson, He does, because so. he was fired by yeah. Jameson. So I, as I said, the character looked a lot more like Venom. Especially given the fact that this is the only time you ever see Scorpion out of his outfit. Yeah. The whole biggest thing is that ever since he was... He should be never been Scorpion. out of his outfit because he that's could, why he hates. He, he could never so much. get out of it. He was always mutant. In fact, as soon as he put it on, suddenly he had sharp teeth and the crazy scorpion eyes, which he didn't have when he took off the costume and was just doing barbells. That's what made me think that it was Venom. <clears throat> um, but um, having said that, some of the jokes weren't like the Simpsons cameo was awful and unnecessary. But that's Zimmerman's, you know, coup de gras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the the dialogue went on for too long about scorpion but i thought the humor of like what a villain talks about while he's in the woods and eating baked beans and sitting there and the like waiting it doesn't explain why he didn't attack them at the function 
why he went and found how he found them in the woods or like why there's just a generic woods that he went to i thought that the relationship between jameson and spider-man was accurate especially for that time period um it was very juvenile but i also thought one of the things that did surprise me because i had forgotten that it happened Aunt May's characterization. You mean Boris Karloff, Mummy Aunt May? Yes, Boris Karloff, Aunt Mummy Aunt May. Only time that he got the character right, but not the aesthetic. <laughs> um, Boris Karloff, Aunt May, who at this point knew who Peter was, told him like, "Do what you do, what you think is best. Like, you know what's you, and I'll support you either way." So, like, the, some of the characterizations there, Alan Timby being constantly thorns in his side, but in a friendly way, also accurate for everything that's gone on. With Al, so like the characterizations were all there, they were all good. Continuity was mostly maintained, um, and like I said, at least there was kind of a superhero brawl. The the action wasn't done off panel. Um, it was funny how they caught up with it, and it had a, like a nice little punchline at the end, where even where even though Joe, J. Jonah Jameson does write this scathing article, one of many against Spider Man, Spider Man literally puts up this huge banner that says. Jonah um, cries like a little girl in his sleep and then webs him to the chair, which, again, given their childish rivalry, while done a bit too childish, seemed kind of accurate. Whereas Ultimate Adventures tried to introduce a new character, completely ruined the current and only real superhero cameo in that entire thing. Yeah. Um, the kid who Also was- kind of ruined the winning streak of... Ultimate. the ultimate line because it was yeah like, good from and then it kind day of one. that was like the first chink in their armor and then it kind of got there were there were yeah. some, some points but this is where the the first hit in what was essentially a solid dunk you could put ultimates on anything and it would so that's why supreme power became part of the ultimates and they did ultimate power so that they could get more money into the supreme power they were line. trying to reboot it up and get yep. more stuff because supreme and it's still as sold. great as it was yeah like did not have a readership base once it left Max and went over to like the regular Marvel Universe. But uh, so yeah, I put Sweet Charity as my bottom. Uh, Bruno put Ultimate Adventures as bottom, and we know artwork. who's right. We know who's right. We don't need to go ahead and dredge into that. So I've got That's one me. final thought <laughs> that I just realized about Ron Zimmerman before we go on to the Marvel. You decide that sets up our next one. It's that Ron Zimmerman was trusted with so much when he got in here. No one this bad has been trusted with this much, aside from Chuck Austin. <laughs> because Thank God. If we're looking at this, we're seeing that he wrote one of the first uh, Max series, so he broke in the Max line. He wrote A Startling Stories, which was another imprint they were starting. He wrote for the Ultimates line. He wrote Marvel Knights, and he also did stuff in the regular Marvel Universe. He wrote for every single imprint they had, except for like the Spider-Girl MC2 universe, which... Shows me that, like, when he came in, Joe Quesada, which was really the guy who put him on everything, Ultimate Adventures, yep. like, being the big one, uh, Raw High Kid, he really had so much faith in him as a writer and really that- bringing that Hollywood charm to it that he just gave him everything and it was just like, I know this is the guy who's going to make this imprint work. I feel like they were just drinking buddies and a lot of the pitches came in while they were drinking. And then he just like, but the amount of trust that he had with this guy. And then we found out that a lot of it's pretty much misguided. By the way, not to be outdone, but being that we talked about Raw High Kid being the Mel Brooks film, I do want to get one final word in on Ultimate Adventures. Mm -hmm. Having said this before, this this is basically like when you're watching the movies that weren't good enough for Mystery Science Theater 3000, the ones... 
that that you're watching and you're like, why am I wasting their time? That's what you can't make jokes that make Ultimate Adventures better. That's that's basically what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this isn't so bad. It's good. It's just so bad, and that's why it deserves the last place on the list because it's just really pretty to look at. But if you wrap up turd in a really pretty diamond, it's still a turd, man. Yeah, and with that being said, we're putting the bow on Ron Zimmerman. Zimmermonth is officially wrapped, and now we're going to jump into something that uh, unexpectedly springboarded out of this, and we're going to talk about Captain Marvel by Peter David. Now, Bruno, you know a little bit more about Captain Marvel by Peter David than I do, so go ahead and uh, give us a quick, quick rundown. All right, well, in this particular case, um, Ultimate Marvel was, or the Ultimate Marvel Universe was doing really well, and they were trying to go ahead and figure out where to go next. So we had X-Men, so they had a good, a good group, Team Dynamic. They had um, Ultimate Fantastic Four, so they had a take on the Marvel's first family and a lot of the sci-fi element, but still very grounded onto Earth. Like, on Earth, they had uh, Spider-Man, which was killing it in both teen drama and, again, like, street-level thing. So they needed to go bigger, and when you're thinking of going bigger, where do you go? Space. So This wasn't an Ultimate. Huh? Captain Marvel was an Ultimate. What do you mean? Was okay, so now I get to school you, bro, because oh, I thought for sure you had this shit on lock, buddy. Right. But yeah, this is removed from the Ultimate Universe. This is actually uh, oh, you're t- oh. Captain Marvel spun out. Oh, you're right. Of I- Avengers Forever, which was Kurt Busiek I'm and so sorry. Carlos Pacheco. I I I, th- I was still picturing the Ultimate Marvel because uh, we were talking about it before. The you were Ultimate. thinking of uh, you were thinking of Garth Ennis. I mean, uh, not uh, Warren Ellis's uh, Ultimate Secret, the Ultimate Galactic yes, trilogy, which is good. good. Which is good. But we're talking about Captain Marvel. Marvel P- oh, Peter Davis, which is Peter Davis. This is Janice Vell after he got the reboot after Avengers Forever. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I All right. No, you know me. you know more about. So tell us a little bit about uh, Captain Marvel All because right. you know more about this character than I do, All and right. I, I would because it's so convoluted to me trying to like figure it out because it's not. Marvel, it's not Carol Danvers. It, no, it's, it's not Monica Rambeau. It, it's Janice Vell. All right. So thank you. I, I apologize for that, uh, dude. There's too many characters. Um, but essentially, what winds up happening is Captain Marvel, um, which is really odd. But he was a, a flagship character in like early Marvel. I think he's pretty. His was it like seventies that, that yeah, he was the seventies. Actually, like his death was one of the big events like one of the first times comics were like man this is good because well, he died of cancer because it was a permadeath it was uh, a permadeath so, too so he was fighting nitro and he has this huge blown out battle by a guy that can basically blow himself up and they're in this um thing and to save all these people he he protects them but all these carcinogen elements uh basically in the battle he absorbed them all and he gains cancer and he's on a timetable and he effectively dies, like, not in glorious battle, but, like, on a deathbed. Mm. Which is the first time you see, like, a, a character that, you know, has the powers of, like, energy manipulation. Has lifted up, like, spaceships and stuff like that. And he's laying there in deathbed, dying. And everyone's reflecting and trying to, like... You know, so it was a very poignant, like, grounded death. Yeah, so when Kurt Busiek brought him back in Avengers Forever... So that was a big thing, but I know this was a different thing. It was Genus Vell. Was that his kid? Genus Vell. So what wound up happening is they had to bring it back, but they didn't. This is about the time when they actually cared about character deaths. Yeah. And they were following the what was previously been Marvel 
had always addressed what they called the um, the Ben Bucky rule, which is you don't bring back Uncle you don't ben. Bring ben back. You don't bring back you Bucky. don't bring back Bucky. That is, of course, no longer a rule as they've done both to varying degrees. But did um, they bring back Uncle Ben multiple times? There's, well, I mean, he's never been permanent, but Bucky. He transcended. I mean, I mean, they brought. He back, is not Bucky anymore. No, he is the Winter fucking Soldier. But they brought back Uncle Ben um, as uh, from alternate reality. They saved him. Time skip. Ah, that doesn't things. count. That None doesn't. of that stuff that counts. The cheap ways that you'd bring someone back. Yeah. Bucky was actually not dead, which was great. But they didn't want to cheapen and just be like, "No, nah, he lived," or we cloned him or something. So what they did is they took um, Genus Vell, which was. His, the Kree basically biologically created this guy, and it's his son, so um, he was essentially created... Did he have uh, the brain of, like, the Supremer? Well, he had, uh, he had, like, ties to the Supreme Intelligence, Yeah. but what wound up happening is that he was, in all essence, the son of Captain Marvel using his, like, DNA, because, like, the Kree are really... Sometimes they, they, they may, depending on who's writing them, other times it's, like, a gene pod where they just like take DNA and make them that's why there's like Captain Marvel has had so many different spiritual successors but he was one of the first ones and not only was he um granted the same powers as his father but he was also given um like omniscience um by like the what was it like Ego the Living Planet mm. he was like the the successor because he had a Quasar. lot of stuff tied into him yeah so he had the ability to go ahead and like um he had the omniscient power of like foresight like he understood things not necessarily in the moment but he like knew enough about like the universe as a whole so like things wouldn't surprise him and um that led to the whole like tying him more and more to the mythos of his father he runs across uh rick jones and they become like the bracelet buddies which is anytime that a character has a the hit bracelets he swaps places so rick jones sees a crime hits the bracelets together and suddenly in comes genus vel as captain marvel to save the day while um rick jones is floating in the phantom zone yeah and they swap back and then you find out that the um the, the omnipotence that he has this i forgot the marvel name for it but it's slowly driving him insane because he wasn't meant to carry it yeah for as long as he was he was he's he was like any port in a storm you're the one that can hold it now but you're not the one that's supposed to be the one that holds it we're you're, we're waiting for the next quasar yeah so after this like avengers forever it spins out into its own series where peter david picks it up and i yeah. think Chris Cross was even in there too which is a really good artist yeah that almost did nothing i guess because he couldn't hit any deadlines which uh there's a lot of artists that we could say that for and he went for i think like over 30 issues but he openly blamed Bill Jameis and Joe Quesada and Marvel for not marketing his book better uh, and that's why the sales were going bad and it's like a, for a guy like him like nowadays it's like 30 plus issues that's a good run on a comic like you don't get anything that's more than 30 plus issues without like a really really strong fan following but this guy came off of 16 plus years of the Hulk and he was starting this up with a like a really long form story with Captain Marvel and after he publicly like went after Bill James and Joe Casada for marking it very poorly, they came up with this initiative called the Marvel You Decide, which was a competition between Joe Casada, who recruited Ron Zimmerman to do Ultimate Adventures, 
Peter David, who was writing Captain Marvel and wrote Captain Marvel really well. So we're not really going to talk about his story per se on this because it's about bad comics. And then we go into Bill Jameis, who was the publisher, the president of Marvel at that time, who was like famous for getting into public spats with uh, DC, Paul Levitz, taking down Mark Wade and trying to rip him off of Fantastic Four, which was like one of the best runs on the co- uh, comic in a very long time. And he created something called Marvel, which is one of the most infamous initiatives in all of like new Marvel comics. So with that being said, it kind of sets the stage. And even though Peter David won, and he got to keep continuing this story for like another 24 issues, 25 issues, like we got out of that Ron Zimmerman and Quesada's uh, Ultimate Adventures, which was terrible. Yeah. And then we also got out of that Bill Jemis's Marvel which I'm trying to tell you, I'm halfway through it, and it's kind of impressive how bad it is. Yeah, it's it's definitely known Marvel has the stigma for carrying over one of the worst comic book series because all their views are like it's nothing but product placements and jabs at one of an, another. What's, what I find really funny is that the whole publicity stunt itself is literally what you expect to get from these two comics Yeah, because it's a jab at something that DC did long ago, but they one-upped it. Uh, do you what know? was the thing DC did? You, you don't remember? Okay, the Robins. Oh, so, you mean when they did the call in? So to, um, when, that was a call back to the Jason Todd getting well, the, crowbarred. The, well, it was a call back to the whole "you decide" because initially speaking, um, when Jason Todd. Oh took shoot! Off, I forgot it was called "you decide." Uh, I, I don't know if that that was the formal tie of it, but yeah. it was like it was like you decide what happens to the character because. Uh, at the time, DC was split. They couldn't decide if people liked the new grittier Robin, Jason Todd, who was more of a jerk, or if they wanted to bring back Dick Grayson or go in another direction. So they knew that they had, like, the audience, like, was split. Like, people were buying issues, but they weren't buying issues. So no one was quite sure how they felt about Jason Todd. So they set up this thing where the Joker, uh, he goes after the Joker who knows his birth mom um, out into, like, Africa tracks him down to like some freaking tent down in Africa and then gets uh, ambushed by the Joker who hits him with a crowbar and ties him to a, a barrel of like you know TNT kind of like what he did in The Dark Knight yeah. with the freaking uh, little with time Dawes and yeah so he's just except this time there's like they're just tied together there's no like cluing in Batman or anything and the timer's running out and then the issue stops and then they had these like said on this day we're taking in all these calls they open up the phone lines and it was yeses and noes press one for yes two for no and by a slim margin everyone went yes so like literally by the slimmest margin we had all these callers call in and say yes so i think it was like by 300 votes was the difference between him that we having um robin die or continuing with jason todd and so the the first time the readers got to decide at a major uh, publishing decision as to whether or not Batman would have this award was done by the readers because DC did this great publicity stunt with it. And it's probably the only thing that most people remember about Jason Todd before the whole Red Hood retcon and like mm-hmm. um, characterization. But Marvel one upped it. It's like, all right, forget picking one character. You get to tell us which book we're gonna like uh, we're gonna keep going. And it was like basically you call in. It's like if you like this one, press one, two, or three. And it was all based off of the sales. And so whichever based, one sold the best. Yeah. And uh, Ultimate Ventures didn't make it. No. Marvel didn't make it. But Captain Marvel. 
Thankfully, Captain Marvel did do it, and I do apologize that I confused it. With and he got like fifty issues out of it, fifty to sixty issues out of his story, all yeah, told. So I, it's I, like not a bad run. I for definitely Peter confused him with Ultimate Secrets, but I, here's the thing: I remember really liking the Captain Marvel because I really liked the dynamic between it was interesting Captain Marvel and Rick Jones because Rick Jones was the veteran, but he had no superpowers. But he'd been old hat. He had done this with his father. Mm-hmm. As well as having training with Captain America, so he knew how to be a hero. Meanwhile, we got this dude with super cosmic powers that doesn't know the first thing about what he's doing. But the thing that I really liked like most about it was this was kind of like the dawn of digital uh, digital colors. Yeah. And there were like two guys doing a really good job with the digital colors. Like Paul Mounts, like on Ultimate Adventures, kills it. Like he across the ultimate line, like he was really good and he set the standard for that. But two that really jump out to me as like unique was Richard Eisenhofer did that really good uh, colored pencil uh, thing, and then also it was the same thing with Chris Sotomayor, who also did the colors for well, uh, I really like Captain Marvel and like the colors the, the down the, to the art. Well, the effect and even of, when yeah, the effect of his artwork is basically for those that know is when he got the cosmic omniscience mm-hmm. um he just turned into like a silhouette had, of the universe he had a silhouette of the universe with like stars like maps of stars on his body and it was it could have easily come off more twilight mm-hmm. but it actually looked very like it cosmic so and good. majestic like for a book that supposedly was struggling to have him on as the colorist like it really lent like a whole another level of gravitas well, it was to struggling because it got no publicity yeah. at all other than this big you decide event um, but it was the storylines were great, the characterizations were great, and if you read Avengers Forever, which was a great storyline, it all it did what you know every once in a while when they have a big event, they'll do like flashbacks into the future. So they were pulling Avengers from all different time levels, and you find out that there's a, a timetable where not only is he an Avenger now, like a full fledged Avenger. But he's also dating Songbird of the Thunder, uh, the Thunderbolts, who at the time was the only one that was actually trying to like be not a villain because the whole point of Thunderbolts where they were still secretly villains but she was starting to buy into the hype of being a hero and really pushing herself yeah. so the fact that she was going to become an Avenger was kind of it kind of it never f- actually went anywhere unfortunately I think other than like throwbacks here and there for like alternate universes but it was definitely a pattern that I wanted to see like how he would meet her and how they would click together and how they would both eventually become part of an Avengers lineup somewhere down the line. Fortunately, that never led anywhere because the series got canceled and it went, but... I think they actually got taken over to Fabian Nessese as like a Thunderbolts run before it got revamped. Actually, it may have been before, after it got revamped into like the Fight Club Thunderbolts. Yeah. But that's like a really interesting time. Like the new Marvel, the whole thing where it's just like when Bill and Joe took over, it's even the stuff that doesn't hit, it's so interesting from and, a story And honestly, there was so much that like that was one of the series that um, having recalled more of it now, it played with a lot of the toys in the Marvel sandbox. Because again, you had a Brick Jones who had so many ties to the Hulk, Captain America, mm-hmm. the f- original Captain Marvel, and then you had a new hero who's got his power set leaves him open for the cosmic scale um and it went so well and then honestly i remember that the end result was that he went crazy and they did this whole other captain marvel series where he had to be taken down his power i think that was the thunderbolts yeah and then it was he was taken down by the one by uh phylovel his 
other biologically created sister who then became Moon Dragon. Yeah. Um, and she took over the mantle from him. And then they, they got a new Quasar out of it because the power went to the right thing. So that was like a buzzkill because there was a character that you really liked that just wasn't getting enough attention. But yeah, so like Captain Marvel killed it. Yeah. Like I, I didn't read it off and on. Like I wasn't really ever big into cosmic until the Annihilation event came around. But I did appreciate it when I went back and read it for the Udicide. Uh but yeah, we can't like dedicate a whole episode to this because this is about bad comics. No, no, th- and, and this was... is not bad, but you know what is a bad comic? Marvel. Next week when we come back, we're looking at Bill Jemis, the president of Marvel Comics, going and taking on his take on uh, DC Comics. He's also taking on religion and God and one of the most bizarre series that I have ever read. And I am I am three issues and I am fascinated, like I said, with how awful well, this is. And I can't wait for you guys to experience it with us next week when we take on Marvel to end up You Decide and then launch straight into Epic Comics. Yep. So in the meantime, guys, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to Marvel. My name is Nick. My name is Bruno. In the meantime, guys, please stay safe uh, as we are still in the middle of this hurricane uh, chronologically. Yeah. <laughs> Again, when the time this comes out, we're just like double doing this stuff. So it's like, it's the same. We're recording the same night as we did the last one. But yeah, you'll know how this turns out for us uh, yeah. sometime down the line. But in the meantime, guys, stay safe. Good night. And Felice Navidad. Take care. Oh, God, it burns.